There you go. I heard this morning, um, it was an information free zone. So if anybody ever wants to come over our house for a weekend, you will have an information free zone. No, digital. Digital free zone. So actually, rather than being... Uh, it's a it, it's somewhat um, a reason for coming over and visiting us now. If you want to, you know, get yourself away from the technology of the day. And I'm a relic of the past. It's another way to put it. Dinosaur. I'm trying to put it in a positive light, Seth. There we go. All right, Hebrews chapter six. I just heard that on the news this morning. I'm saying, hey, I actually have something in common. They're actually creating places for people to get away from their technology. All right. Hebrews 6, verses 13 through 20 is my task today. But when God actually, you know what? I want to just back up just a little bit. Let's, let's read it verse 9 through 20. Get a little context in here. But, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name, and having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises." For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And thus, having patiently waited, he obtained the promises. For men swear by one greater than themselves. And with them an oath given is confirmation as an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath. In order that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we may have strong encouragement. We who have fled to refuge and laying hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. We can, I'll just give you a little introduction here, we cannot separate the author's exhortation to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises from divine threat or warning, in Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, of judgment to those, and I'll put a little asterisk next to Christians, who seem, and that's a very important word, to be falling short of those promises by falling away from the truth. God's call to every Christian is to endure in this life by faith in Christ alone. Jesus said two times, those who endure in the faith will be saved. Christian confidence increases while we live by faith. But Jesus says only those who endure to the end of life can be certain their confidence is from God. 
This is the reason why the author of Hebrews in chapter 6 has used words to describe endurance. Here are some of the words he uses. In chapter 6, verse 1, he uses the word press on to maturity. In 6.3, he says, this we shall do if God permits, and he's talking about perseverance. In 6.4-7, through 7, he uses the word, we are like the rain to which God sends to the earth, soaks into the ground, and bears fruit from that good rain. In 6.11, he says, be diligent. Almost call, almost kind of like uh, God holds the banner and says, follow me in your diligence. 6.12, do not be sluggish. I'm going to use the contemporary word. Christian, don't get lazy. Don't get lazy. Be faithful. So these are the words, the adjectives used to describe up to this point. You could say they are the empirical evidences the author says that must accompany salvation. Look at verse 9 of chapter 6. But beloved, that conjunction there but is really important because he's made a case for those who fall away could never ever return to Christ. Why? Because Christ would be crucified all over again. You cannot repent twice unto a regeneration. Your repentance is unto a regeneration that is final and absolute. So in verse 9, he says, But, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you, things that accompany salvation. Your maturity, your perseverance, your diligence, your good fruit, your, not, your, your lack of laziness. In other words, you're energetic in your spirituality and you're faithful. So this is the empirical evidence, by the way, we as Christians look back in our lives and we also expect in our present life and look forward to even in our future years by the grace of God. Is there spiritual fruit in my life? Look at Hebrews 10, 30 and 36. The author continues this theme. Because remember now, the, the divine threat comes from what's actually happening within the church to the group of people or groupings of people to whom he is writing. There's uncertainties of, is this a, uh, a dispersion to which he writes? Certainly, I believe he's writing to Hebrew Christians who understand the law and uh, the, uh, the ramifications of what Christ, this new high priest, has done in changing the law because the law is to be changed, because the priesthood has changed, and so on and so on. But he has strewn throughout this letter also themes that we have to take note of. And the theme in chapter, end of chapter 5 and chapter 6 is you have a guaranteed salvation. You have a model of discipleship to which you learn and you grow in. And there are some of you, you're just not growing. You're still in those elemental principle stages and need to grow up in Christ. And some of you are even on the fringe of falling away. And therefore, in this warning that I give you, if you fall away, you cannot return. But look at chapter 10, 30 and 36. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Is that the one I want? I'm sorry, 35 and 36. I knew that wasn't the one. Verse 35 and 36 of Hebrews 10. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, 
which is a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Endurance believes, and we're going to talk about the already and not yet, believes that my salvation has already guaranteed to me the promises of God fulfilled in Him, in Christ, and they are yea and amen. And yet, not yet, have I received all those promises. And because I have not received all those promises, I will not use that as an excuse to fall away. It will not happen. And today's study is based on Abraham as the example for you not to fall away. Hebrews 10.38 says... But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Question. Just curious. As there are times in our life where we quench the Spirit of God and God has no pleasure in our actions because there are actions outside of the realm of faith. Mm-hmm. By the way, the hyper-grace movement would say, you're absolutely incorrect, Kelly. And I have too. And as Michael Brown says in his book, Gary gave it to me. He says the times that I felt closer to God when He was near to me is when I, as a sinner, in a mindset of repentance, drew back near to Him. And He is a God who always returns to the humble, to the repentant of heart. He always does. So having given us things, these things to look for in our own lives, these evidences, these empirical evidences of faith. He says now, at the very beginning of this text in verse 12, my charge is verse 13 through 20, but verse 12 is really important. He says, be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. It's interesting, he uses the plural, and yet he's going to use the singular to describe as the example Abraham. I believe what's going on here are two things. First, Abraham's, in the author's mind, is not the only one who's a good example. But he's using Abraham as an example because he's one of the greatest of examples to be, for us to be imitators of. Psalm 102 says, It is, or it will be written for the generation to come, that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. Do you realize that God is creating in His elect new people to model after for every generation of believers? For you and I to look as imitators? You know, to imitate certain things within certain people who are Christians who have just so idealized in a good sense. I don't say that negatively. What it means to be a faithful Christian throughout the ages and throughout the generations and even in our time. Yeah. So I think that Christian community and intimacy within that community is so important because if you don't know what's going on in someone's life, you don't get to see how Christ is being displayed and how they react. Yep. You know, you gotta linger together and know what's going on. You gotta go to church and be involved in the church in order to see who you can imitate in the church. I, I you know and, and, and trust me, I look around And I say, where's the youth? They are missing out on who to model. And in general, and I'm not saying they can't find it in their own generation, but in general, it's the older people who they end up should be modeling who have gone through 
the times of suffering and testing and trial by the Lord. And it is important for every church to stimulate, and I, and I do believe this is our charge, each one of us have a connection. I don't have a connection with every single young person in this church. I'm the old codger who's a dinosaur in so many different ways, but I have a connection through certain ones more than others. For instance, Ethan Spielman has worked for me for five years. I have a connection to Ethan. Um, but I don't have a connection to other people, young people. But you do. In other words, you may have that special connection, that relationship that 98% of us in here do not have to that individual young person that you can stir on the faith so that you might be the one they imitate and use as a pattern of faithfulness. And to also stir them on to be part of the community of believers to where now, as a community, corporate body, we're also stimulated as well. So, give an example. Anybody, we don't have tons of time for this, but in, in, I'm not looking for a, 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 a life a life uh, narrative of the individual person you may have in your mind, but uh, who is a mentor to you in church history that you said, I would love to pattern my faith after so-and-so who is, maybe you read a biography or something. Who? George Mueller. George Mueller. Okay. All right. A very humble person who dealt with young people. Absolutely. For me, I, I just go to Scripture. I relate so much to Peter. You know, Peter, and maybe that's not the answer you're looking for. Maybe you're looking for, like, Christian authors or pastors. Well, no, it could but, be anybody, yeah. But, you know, Peter was the kind of guy that found out where the line was by crossing over and then had to apologize. <laughs> that's kind of where I live. I kind of relate to that part of Peter. Yeah. No, I, I, I'm, I, and I do believe that the Scriptures specifically have certain personalities within the Bible that are so human where uh, their success story after showing so much of themselves in sin and mistakes and all the other things that there are patterns for us to say if they can go from here to there oh the Lord I have not lost I, I have lost not hope it's not a person of church history although this person has more history in the church than I do but years ago, I, I knew that I needed an older Christian brother as a mentor. Mm-hmm. I, I knew that, and I prayed for it. And God did provide that in, a, in an older gentleman that's he's probably 75 now, but he's been through raising his kids already. He was in prison ministry. Um, wasn't We weren't of the same soteriological mindset at all. He, we were on opposite. He was probably as Armenian as you can be. Um, but he was a mentor. He is a mentor today mm-hmm. to me in many ways. And since you say that, because I know Gary's experience and my experience are the same. Mm-hmm. Older people mm-hmm. who had the decades of experience mm-hmm. as living out their faith yeah. taught Joycelyn and I in almost 20 years worth of Bible studies mm-hmm. of how to be a Christian mm-hmm. with great respect. And, you know, I mean, this guy, I was kind of like, he flew 20 missions over Berlin. I mean, he just had that character that just was... You know, in a B-17 bomber, B-24, whatever it was. But I still remember that. He was a great mentor to me. And he was a brave man. When I saw that bravery hooked into his faithfulness, I said, wow, i got to hold on to him for a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Gary? Kelly had her hand up. One of the blessings I had of being on vacation was reading a couple books. And one was by a man I'd never heard of. It was Sheldon Van Hawken. 
C.S. Lewis was one of his mentors, mm-hmm. and he included in the book letters between the two of them, and the corrections, the admonishments, the encouragements, and it was such a blessing mm. to have been a part of their relationship mm. in, in reading the book. Yeah. You know, um, our narrative history cannot be defined by our own personal narrative history because God interwoves people in that narrative. And um, uh, if we don't get that early in our Christian life, we will be the island uh, that um, isn't freshened by the rain of other people as God produces fruit within us. And I love that illustration he gives here. Christians are to be people who are being watered by God from heaven, soaking up that water and growing. And those who are not, who are at risk of falling away, are the ones who soak up in that, who are like ground that soak up the rain and they bear no fruit but thorns. And then men burn the thorns because they're useless to God. That's the illustration here in the backdrop of Hebrews 6 in the context. So, there's two things I said. First, being an imitator of those. The author is talking more in the sense of just Abraham. Uh, but he doesn't elucidate further with that. Secondly, he says, those who are inheritors of the promises of God. Now, we have to have in our mindset, the promises of God are earthly and also heavenly. We cannot separate the two. We can, yes, we can see from human experience, receiving blessings out of our salvation to where God has promised us and in that salvation we receive spiritual blessings currently, right now, and in our future. But when we're talking about Abraham, we're talking about living out a life and Abraham not seeing all the blessings and the promises. It's so far ahead of him, so far ahead of him, that in no way if he focused just on the promise and how far out it was, he would have lost hope. So today's study is then, therefore, what does Abraham believe in? It wasn't the promises that were so far ahead of him that he couldn't touch and smell and taste, but it was the content of the promises and the one who gave the promises, who gave an oath all by himself, God himself, swearing by himself, I will do this. And God can't swear by no one greater but himself. So that's the context of the study. But we have to remember that our human experience is we already are receivers of the promises. Live out as if those promises are already fulfilled in time and space for each one of us. And yet, not yet have we received all the promises. This is a hermeneutical um, uh, interpretive (coughs) understanding of eschatology. In other words, you have a personal salvation. You are saved right now. Also, the scripture speaks of us being saved because we have not fully realized our salvation from an an inheritance perspective of the kingdom of God and inheriting also the promise of our resurrected body and seeing Christ face to face and living with him in that full salvific mode or reality in heaven with him. Glorifying Him for eternity. Already, but not yet. Surety, steadfastness, enough for our faith to endure, and yet 
still titillating for us in the future. Hebrews 11. Go to Hebrews 11. Let's see here. Verses 9. I don't know if I want to read the whole thing. Uh, well, yeah, let's see. 8 through 16. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. That was Canaan. By faith, he lived as an alien. This is, by the way, in the synopsis of his life. He is looking, I'm sorry, by faith he lived as an alien in a land of promise, as a, in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which had foundations, whose architect and builder was God. Already, not yet. I go, I go to the land. I have not yet received the promise. Why? Because he's looking for a dwelling that's beyond him. All right? By faith, even Sarah herself received the ability to concede, even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful, who had promised. Therefore, also, there is born one man, and him was good as dead as, at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven, and number and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. That was the promise given to Abraham and Sarah. All these died in faith, without receiving the promises. But having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles in the earth, for those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. By the way, we can never have a country of our own in this world. The Puritans were wrong. New England could not be the new city of God. Never was, never would be, never will be. I appreciate the Puritans tremendously. But their worldview, their spiritual worldview that allowed them to have that mindset was wrong. Verse 15, And indeed, if they had not been thinking of that country for which they went out, they would not have had opportunity to return. But as it is, the desire, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. It's interesting. It goes from Abraham singularly to the promise given to him, then to his wife, and then plurally, even more, to all of us. Verse 39 and 40, 39 and 40 of Hebrews 11 finishes this thought. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. After the listing of this great cloud of witnesses in the entirety of the chapter of Hebrews 11 with multiple characters throughout redemptive history, because God, verse 40, had provided something better for us that, so that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Back to Hebrews 6. Already, not yet, have we received what was promised. So if God's promises to His people were eternal blessings that have not been realized yet, what does then the Christian have to place their hope and faith in according to Hebrews 6, 13-20? What is it? One verse in there that says it all. What is it? Verse 17. Scream it out. Two words. His unchanging nature. Okay. His unchanging nature. That's part of His purpose. But he's done something so that you and I can be certain. His promise 
And then he gives an oath in relationship to that promise. In other words, he swears by himself. I will do this for you. I will save you. I will cause you to endure like Abraham. This does, by the way, not mean that you will not have trouble. I find it interesting. You go through the promises that are given in Genesis 12, 15, 17. You get to chapter 22 and the scripture says, and God tested Abraham. Well, why test him? Why put him under the gun? You've given your promises. They're eternal. They're by your own person. You're swearing to yourself. <laughs> We're not any different than Abraham. And the point I'm only making is, is expect God to test you in your life of faith even though you have an anchor to the soul, Hebrews 6, of that you can trust Him. He does not lie for your salvation and the continuation of the salvation benefits throughout your entire life. Oh, and then all of a sudden you turn 42 years old, a change of life, maybe you change your job, and all this is not by your own volition. You don't want it. And you get it. And now your faith is being tested as never before. Has God changed when He tests you? Absolutely not. <laughs> That's always our problem, isn't it? We look at the self. We're looking in the mirror. We still see ourselves. Rather than, alright, I need to look in the mirror and see Christ in me. And now He demands of me to bear fruit of Christ's likeness. And by the way, when that happens, I stop looking at myself. By the way, you're looking at a person who's looked at himself way too long. Okay? And whenever I do that, I get into trouble. Right? The tests become harder. Tony? I was just thinking about glorified and, and it being displayed. And so... God has thought it necessary that His faith be displayed for all the world to see. Mm -hmm. And how better way to do that than to actually have it worked out and played in front of us mm -hmm. in our own lives and in the past and, and will be in the future. That's right. And Abraham is that example. It's, it's kind of like a... When you use the word played, it kind of, it, it's, a, it's, a running, it's a running movie of the Scriptures that says, well, by the way, watch the reruns of the Bible. All right? The reruns of people's lives who have lived a life of faithfulness and, and watch them over and over and over again. And we'll pick up those spiritual truths that really will help us to endure. Be imitators of those who inherit the blessings. And I need to watch constantly those who God has placed in the Scripture. First and foremost. And second, oh I should say, I should say, I should say, secondly, but first and foremost, Christ Himself. For He is the ultimate mentor to which we all watch. And you could say imitate and model ourselves after. So, uh, what impresses you most about Abraham's life and how he lived it, even though God tested him? In other words, he was living a faithful life. It's not like Abraham had been sinning to a degree where God says, I'm going to test you now and I'm going to get this sin out of you. It's not how he viewed Abraham. He was a sinner walking by faith, just like you and I are. But the testing was, you could say, an autonomous act of God to test 
the very fruit that he was already producing in Abraham. That's what he does. How about the fact that he got a good night's sleep the night before he was to go out and kill his son? <laughs> well, that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Tony's, Tony's advice is get a good night's sleep before you grab the knife. Uh, there's a little bit more to that, I know. <laughs> but I, what impresses me is not the good night's sleep, but that he willingly said, all right, Lord, I don't have the full you your 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 command to me. I don't understand the entire command, but I'm going to Mount Moriah and I'm heading by faith, and I'm bringing the knife. Yeah, God asks us to do, and that's what I hate about the hyper grace movement too. I know I'm picking on them today, but <laughs> by golly, um, there's there's no room left for God to literally test the Christian and test them to their limits. Because God would not do that to you. Life and faith is easy, quote-unquote. Just believe and everything in your life will turn out rosy. Now, those are my words. But the understanding is this. Sanctification comes by you believing correctly. It has nothing to do with God testing you and forcing the issue on you to live in a way that is more Christ-like now than the way you're living right now. And He wants you to bear fruit. And it's going to hurt. And it's going to cause you to make spiritual effort. They hate the word spiritual effort. The phrase. They hate it. Why? Because it's law. As if something now, your salvation is based on what you do to please God. And all you have to do is think properly. God said to Abraham, I'm going to test you. Go to the mountain. Right? Where else? What else about Abraham's life? Uh, his endurance over time is impressive to me. Like We're probably looking at 75 plus years. Mm-hmm. And the Bible describes maybe a dozen events of significance in those 75 years. Mm-hmm. So most of his endurance was just the mundane everyday just continuing to be faithful. Yep. Think of his decision with Lot. And I love Hebrews 6 because I believe, you know, you have echoes in the Bible. And commentators, you read books and commentators will talk about there's probably an echo or an allusion to. In other words, it's not proven, but, you know, these are scholars who know the Bible very well through in, in, through, in and throughout. Uh, and, you know, there's an echo of Abraham chose the lesser land. He let Lot have his first preference. He goes into the valley and, and the prosperity of a fertile valley. He goes into the mountains. He goes into the, the arid, semi-arid regions. And, and yet, did not God not reign from heaven his own prosperity by his faithfulness and humility, trusting that God would prosper him even though he did not receive the better land. That's the echo, I believe, of what faithfulness God's looking for in the Christian. If you don't want to fall away, then expect God may test you. And He may even put you in a land of aridness. Maybe a pagan land where idols are around every corner. And yet He promises, if you go where I'm sending you, you'll bear spiritual fruit and you will not fall away. 
the Christian today is always in such a society and culture. Yeah. They weren't. Yeah. I mean, maybe Abraham, certainly to some extent, but the Jewish communities, I mean, we live outside the camp in a sense. We do. All the time. Yeah. These people are constantly in their covenant community. Yeah. We are not. Yeah. We are constantly confronted as soon as we wake up with a, uh, with a small potential electronic idol. There's a million idols along the way. There's worldviews that are pressed upon us that are, to, to some extent, you have to be a partaker of those worldviews in your job, in your relationship. <coughs> we're, in a, we're in a constant bath all the time mm-hmm. in a way that they weren't. Mm-hmm. So God is also doing things in us, I think, that would give them cause to say, wow, that's pretty cool. Look what God's yeah. doing in them. And I believe God purposely tests Christians mm. so that at the end of the day, they're moving away from those potential idols. Mm. Mm-hmm. So they're still in a course mm-hmm. of faith. I, I find it interesting that when uh, Abraham was uh, told that Lot had been taken prisoner, uh, he'd been captured, that he, it, it appears though he didn't hesitate to gather 300 men and go after him and rescue Lot. Mm-hmm. And uh, so to me, that's a. Uh, I mean, Abraham could have said, well, it's God's will, you know, we'll let this guy, uh, let Lot be a, a taken mm-hmm. captain, let him, he's on his own kind of. No, he went and defended his family. He went and got him. What's interesting here is when God says, and the author of Hebrews says, um, in verse 17, in the same way God desiring to even more show, show, demonstrate to the heirs of the promise. This word promise here literally is a divine assurance of good. He has determined, God has determined to grant to us an assurance of goodness in that promise. He did with Abraham. Abraham saw the goodness in that promise. It did not, God did not say, I'm going to make your life a better roses so you might receive even more goodness. He said, your life will be a difficult life like every other Christian's, every other believer's, but at the end is goodness. That's what the promise is. Um, in 6.18, I just want to re-affirm uh, this part. In order that by two unchangeable things, the promise and the oath, in other words, God's going to take His unchangeable purpose, His divine decree of eternity past, to bring forward generations that would eventually praise Him. That's Psalm 102 to the degree that he would fulfill this redemptive work within humanity for an elect people. He would do it through a promise and make an oath so that promise would be fulfilled. He says it, but to people reading this letter so they would not fall away. So he says, in order that, verse 18, that by two unchangeable things, the promise and the oath, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we may have strong encouragement. We need encouragement as we go on in life. (laughs) We need to encourage one another for someone who is going through where it is their, you could say, Mount Moriah experience. God is saying to an individual, I am going to take everything that's important to you from you. And you see it. And if you don't give strong encouragement to endure in the faith to your brother and sister in this room and in this corporate body, then you are neglecting the ministry 
of the corporate body and of our own personal experience with the Holy Spirit in us and in other people, other Christians in this body. We need to give strong encouragement as this author is giving strong encouragement to Christians to endure and don't get lazy in your spiritual life. You have everything to live for. It's the reason why suicide is probably one of the worst sins a Christian could ever do. It's not only self-murder, but it's also saying enduring in the faith is too much for me. Do we not have the Holy Spirit or not in us? We have to ask ourselves, right? Do we not? Go to Genesis 22. This is where the author chose to quote. All right, Genesis 22. Chose to quote. Now, um, the interesting thing is Abraham's experience on Mount Moriah where God calls him to sacrifice his own son. The heir of the promise, by the way. The heir of Abraham's original promise and through whom seeds that, by the way, Christ would come. But God gave this promise to Abraham in chapter 12, chapter 15, chapter 17. And reiterated it, not only in those three chapters, but also in chapter 22. It's interesting that he finalizes the reasons why Abraham can be so resolute in his faithfulness to God. Verses 15 through 18. And I believe that's the reason why the author picks up on this. He could have chose... He could have chose um, chapter 12, chapter 15, chapter 17. He didn't. He chose chapter 22. And further on quoting from chapter 22, what Abraham literally was depending on in God to do and why he could trust him. 15 through 18. Uh, let's see. i got to get on the right chapter. I'm 21 here. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, that because you have done this thing, in other words, offer your son up, and you have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. And in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now that's the reiteration of the promise in chapters 12, 15, and 17. But the addition here is by myself I have sworn. God puts, you could say, almost the king's seal finally. You know, the signet ring. I have the authority to be able to make this so resolute because I'm swearing only by my own authority, my own personhood, my own Godhead. And by the way, this alludes to the plurality of the Godhead. The agreement between Father and Son and work of the Holy Spirit in redemptive history to bring about the true seed of Abraham, who is Christ alone, in which God will make this promise and this oath come to fruition in every Christian's life. 
every Christian's life. And he swears by himself. Man! Should we ever, ever desire to shrink back, I'm using the language of Hebrews, shrink back from the faith when God is sworn by Himself. And He chose the ultimate test to prove. Do you see, Abraham? I was never going to let you kill your son because my promises exceed what you can see right now. But you trusted in my promises beyond what you could see. And knowing that I am good and will do good, and I'm going to give you the assurance of good in my promise, that all things will be fulfilled in my only begotten Son, and they will be yea, and they will be amen in Him. Wow. There are some days you wake up, right? Oh, the sun hasn't come up. Boy, this year was the test, huh? I don't think I don't think we had a full sunny day for three and a half months. I don't think there was any more than maybe four, five, six of them. And Joyston and I, I mean, I had three pairs of boots at home, and they were old boots. I needed new boots. My feet are a mess already, and the last thing I needed to do was wear old, weather-beaten, cracked, wet boots with wet socks for three months and my feet are testimony if anybody wants to see my feet after this i'll show you i'll show you the hammer toes and and all the other stuff that i got going on i know tmi but by golly you get that gloomy attitude with the weather sometimes right and then it gets into soul the sun hasn't come out for a week and all it does is rain 30 inches in three months not that i'm counting Right? And the gloom starts to wear on your faithfulness even. Lord, when will the rain stop? If you're a farmer, I will only tell... If if you're a farmer, all I can tell you is we do see it differently when you make your life from the land. Joyce and I pick more blueberries in the rain than I ever picked in the last five years in the rain. And you shouldn't have to pick blueberries in the rain. Picking apples in the rain, I've done. Picking blueberries in the rain? Come on! And they were cracking. You know how much rain it takes to crack blueberries? There were cracked blueberries. Anyways, I'm wandering here. But the idea is this. We impose our own gloominess of the surroundings around us. And we let ourselves get affected by them rather than the certainties of an eternal God's promise and oath He's made to you and I, every single time you wake up in the morning, you can trust Me. That should take the gloom away. That's the point. Along that same line, in the book of Hebrews chapter 12, it says, lift up the hands which hang down and the knees which are turned out of the way. Amen. Um, oh, good so, I mean, there was that tendency. I mean, Thessalonians says, "Despise not prophesying, quench not the spirit." So, uh, I mean, we can speak very positively of what the Christian life should be like, and that is the normality. But oftentimes, it's abnormality in the family of God, and we we get turned out of the way for varieties of reasons. What well, the beauty about this text is is actually because the, the argument goes around to verse. Uh, I just changed my page. So what, what verse is this? Probably around 
verse 6 and 7 of chapter 6 about bear, about uh, those who have learned and then fall away. And the argument is always pointing towards, oh, can you lose your salvation? Well, the entirety of the text is telling us, you can't! You can't lose your salvation! You are not part of the grouping to which the warning is giving, given as a reality of what you can experience. In other words, the reality of falling away falls on the unbeliever because they don't have an enduring faith like Abraham. They don't have the Spirit of God within them. And therefore they do, even though they taste the goodness of God, they fall away. And I love the interplay. The promise is an assurance of God's goodness. The Christian believes in that. The unbeliever has only tasted the goodness. Just a little inkling of it. And they fall away. So actually the t- entirety of the, 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 the whole case being given here of the end of chapter 5 and all of chapter 6 is this. It's the Christian that doesn't fall away because they believe in the promises of God to the degree that it's an anchor to the soul. And therefore, the warnings, the only part of the warning that benefits the Christian is because it's a warning to cause us to endure more. For the unbeliever, it's a true warning. You've been hanging out with Christians for a long time. You may even start looking like a Christian. But this Holy Spirit is absent within you and there is no staying power. You trust in yourselves, not in God like Abraham. Therefore, when you fall away, you cannot return in the same repentance as before. How many times have the unbelieved who remain unbelievers repented, shown back up at church, and then fall away and then come back to church and do this cycle over and over again? Many. Many. So the reality of the of the threat, called a divine threat, Puritans would call it a divine threat, is that the threat is to improve the Christian to spiritual endurance over time. But to the unbeliever who's hanging out in the church, you could say in the presence of these wonderful promises who have not realized them in their own heart because they have not truly been converted, they're the ones who are the ones who fall away and the threat becomes the reality to them. So go to Psalm 110. Once again, another allusion in Hebrews 6 to another text in the Bible to bring to a fuller light what the author is communicating to a people who are on the fringe of falling away. All right? By the way, the context of Psalm 110, which is a very often quoted psalm in the New Testament, is speaking of Christ's lordship. And the, and the interesting thing is, is Christ is ruling in the midst. The Father has set the Son on the right hand. So it's already looking at the Son as if He's already at the hand, right hand of the Father as the victor All right, on Calvary. He will rule in the midst of thy enemies. In verse 3, the people will volunteer freely in the day of thy power. We're going to agree with him in his judgments. Verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Thou art a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So that gets to the end of the text. And you say, why does the author of Hebrews mention Melchizedek again? after giving these great assurances 
of God's goodness to the Christian who just simply needs to endure in the faith just like Abraham and all these others in human history that have been examples to you and I and we're to be imitators. Why mention the Melchizedek priesthood right out of the blue? Here in Psalm 110, David puts the two together because the Melchizedek priesthood is an eternal priesthood. It is eternal. And it all depends on the Father's granting to the Son, or I should say the, the Father's covenantal agreement with the Son to redeem a people for His own possession. And we are the recipients of that promise in eternity past. And therefore the beneficiaries of the promises He gives us for the future. And it's all based on Christ. Melchizedek priesthood because the priesthood is a mediation priesthood. He mediates for you and I in all that we do in these struggles of faith. You and I cannot endure like Abraham unless Christ intercedes for us in heaven at the right hand of the Father. Do you know that? Do you realize that? It's the reason why Paul says to the Romans, he says, and the one who knows the mind of the Spirit. That's Christ. He intercedes for us. The Spirit of God presents the Spirit's groanings and our groanings up to heaven to a mediator. In his nail-pierced hands and his feet are a testimony of God's eternal promise that we will endure because the Holy Spirit will not let us go. That's part of the assurance of the Melchizedek priesthood that Christ has put upon himself. Because again, in the next chapter, it's going to describe the eternality of the Melchizedek priesthood. He has no beginning of days. He has no end of the days. Why is that important? Because Christ is eternal with the Father as in a distinct person and one of unified essence. And their agreement with one another in the plurality of the Godhead says, we will save a people for ourselves. Wow. God and the Godhead is for us and not against us. And if you want to learn more about the Trinity and the Godhead, then come to Tuesday Night Bible Study. We're starting in two weeks. Shameless plug. What a shameless plug. <laughs> Be there. Shameless plug. <laughs> But I'll tell you, the more, and I'll tell you, the Trinity is critical in understanding Mm -hmm. your salvation. Critical. And the unity of the Godhead, and yet its diversity, is the very understanding that if we understand God more, we understand our salvation more. And the brightness of that glory shines greater and greater in our understanding of knowing how great this good God is. It's incredible. Um, that's at your house, Tom? Yeah, no, that's Tom and Tammy's house. Tom and Tammy's house. Yeah. Uh, let's go to one text here to finish up. Go to Romans 15. Romans 15. Romans 15, 5 through 9, 9a. 
Something like that. I sound like a theologian when I use A, B's, and double F's. You ever see that? I still don't know. What's a double F when you see it? What's the double F? Following. Oh, versus following. You see that? I'm really not a very smart theologian. They do that just. I don't even know the letters. I don't even, as, as they say in the colonialism, I don't know my letters. It's like when they say things in Latin. What are you going to do that for? Just, just kill you. All right? What are you trying to impress you? That's right. I'm a blue-collar blue preacher and teacher. That's what I'll tell you. All right. <laughs> Romans 15, 5 through 9. <laughs> All right. But I have written... Actually, let's... Yeah, yeah 15. Okay. Uh, but I have written very boldly to you on some point so to, as to remind you again because of the grace that was given me from God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a high, or as a priest, the gospel of God, that my offering of the Gentiles might become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. He's using the terminology of what God does as his own personal ministry. That's incredible. Paul is acting as a priest, mediating for the Gentiles. All right, verse 17. That's another theological study. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. For I will not presume to speak of anything except that Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by the word and deed, in the powers and signs and the wonders and the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem roundabouts, far as Illustrium, I have fully preached the gospel. Wait a second, I'm not even in the right text. Sorry about that. 5 through 9a. I've got 15 through 19. Sorry. 5 through 9. Can we clarify where we are? Yes. Romans 15, 5 through 9. Sorry. I mean, just, you know, what are you going to do? Now, may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement. Yes, this is the context of Hebrews 6. Grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. That with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wherefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers. So he did that for the Jews. And for the Gentiles to glorify God for His mercy as it is written. That verse 8 is the text on most 8 and 9a. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers. And 9a, it includes you and I as Gentiles. They are confirmed through the gospel. The gospel has confirmed that God's promise and oath has and will be fulfilled in us through the church and His kingdom to come. His kingdom is coming. And when that statement is made, it opens up a Pandora's box of understanding of theology. But the kingdom to come is talking about the fruition of God's efforts in humanity and bringing about a salvation work that brings glory to God in that redemptive good work of God. It's amazing. And we're part of it. He's confirmed it to the fathers and to every Jew. By the way, every Jew is without excuse. 
Christ is Lord, Christ is Messiah, Christ is King. And to the Gentiles, we were dogs. We were the leftovers. But not to God. Because God had always determined that the Gentiles would be part of His kingdom. Always. So we are not second class citizens. But it's the timing of God first to show the favor of God to the Jew first in order that they would reject it and then for us to receive the blessings of a good God. And so we are blessed indeed. So let's... What's that? Dogs do go to heaven. Yes, they do. Thank you, brother. Good memory. I'm going to have to. I like that. That's a memory verse for me. What text is that? Dogs do go to heaven. All right, let's finish in prayer. Well, Father in heaven, uh, the assurance of your goodness, O Lord, is certain. It is an anchor to the soul. I, I picture a ship where a great anchor drops and keeps it from the storms of the sea and keeps it anchored in the bay where there is tranquility and safety. And this is what you have promised us. For those who trust in Christ, He is the anchor of our soul, the true anchor of the soul, because God's promise and His oath, although given to Abraham, it was given to Abraham to glorify Messiah. And therefore, the spiritual seed of Abraham have been the recipients of the true seed of God in Christ. What goodness. What providential and sovereign planning you have uh, given to us in the Scriptures to show us the plan of God, the purposes, the unchangeable purposes of God. And we marvel at this today, Lord. We just marvel at it. And it brings up and wells up in our souls living water, that living water that Christ promised us when we would be saved. A living water that flows and truly bears fruit within us. The righteousness of Christ, that we would live that life of righteousness that Abraham lived. And may we pass that on too to those who are younger here too. And to bring glory to your name in each generation as we go upstairs in our own generation, in this time and space, at this very moment, we magnify the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords in Christ's name. Amen. It was a pleasure to be here. Yep. All right, now, how do I shut this off now? Do it. You guys can run for us. Can't wait, bro. Can't wait.